Welcome to Commons Groundswell, a podcast that examines human relationship with land through conversations with inspiring leaders, changemakers, and agrarian trust collaborators. Hi, welcome to Commons Groundswell. I'm your host, Natalie Ashker Sievers. In this episode, I speak with Molly Anderson, professor of food studies at Middlebury College in Vermont. We talk about what it means to hold land in the commons, the false narrative that industrial agriculture is feeding the world, and why decommodification is necessary if we want to transform our food system. Okay, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how your work intersects with Agrarian Trust and what your experience has been like, you know, being a a member of that board. Well, I am just starting as a community board member for a new agrarian commons. So there's a lot that I don't know yet about exactly what I'll be doing. But the reason that I was very interested in joining is that I've been fascinated by commoning for quite some time. It seems like a a really interesting alternative to private property, a much better way that people who are really struggling to get access to land and to food now might be able to get better access. So I wanted to be part of that. And especially when this new commons um, was being formed, that's very close to where I live, I, of course, said, yes, I'd be glad to join the community board. Yeah. So can you, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, I understand that the commons or commoning, there are different ways that we can talk about commons, food system commons, farmland commons. Uh, can, can you explain a little bit about, I guess, land commons and farmland commons and how this is an alternative to the private land ownership or state ownership that we kind of thinking we kind of think about as being the only options for the way that we tend land but that's not true sure and it's really good that you brought up that there are different ways of thinking about commons uh, an article that I worked on with some indigenous people emphasized that that for indigenous people um, what we think of as commons doesn't make a lot of sense to them, even though externally it looks as if their uh, land management systems are pretty much what we think of as commons. But they see commons as a rather westernized idea. Um, And from their perspective, land is not something that can be owned. It's something that can be used, it can be managed, and the, the thought of one person owning land is almost obscene. Um, it, it's just so illogical. Um, from the Western perspective, and, and maybe I should back up first and say that from the perspective of many traditional people, that is the natural way to manage land, to manage it as a commons, because there's no point in uh, excluding other people from your land. If many people could be taking advantage of that land or that resource, whether it's for fishing or for hunting or for farming, 
uh, or grazing. Grazing commons were very uh, common in Europe, and you'll still find grazing commons in a few places. Uh, Switzerland still has grazing commons. I saw one in England um, a few years ago where people from a town were all grazing their cows together on the town common. So the, the idea is that many people can use what we think of as a resource, um, that, that term resource also jars a little bit with indigenous ways of looking at land because to them it's a, a relative or a, um, something sacred. And the term resource has a utilitarian cast to it, that it's something that we use. We think of, of it as a resource because we can monetize it, we can use it, we can sell it. But if you are considering land as a commons, then it, 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 it's really not a resource anymore in that same sense. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it feels very extractive when we talk about using resources. Uh-huh. Exactly. Or exploiting them. Mm-hmm. So you co-wrote an article called From Food as Commodity to Food as Liberation. And it states that a meaningful transformation of our food system must be based on de commodification of food and all the elements that make that food make that food system possible like land labor seeds etc can you explain why decommodification is necessary and what decommodification of land even looks like i'll try <laughs> decommodification means taking it out of that realm of private ownership um and, and more and more things in our society have become commodified. Everything from uh, land to water to food. Uh, for many people, thinking of food as a commodity is the only alternative. They can't really think of food as a public good. But the problem with commodities is that they are bought and sold. They are monetized. They're financialized. And also that's connected in with this extractive exploitative system uh, of capitalism that is intent on commodifying, commodifying more and more of the world around us so that it can be exploited and monetized and people can be making profit from it. But as long as we think of, of these um, goods, as commodities, then it, it knocks out the possibility of thinking of them as public goods, as things that should be accessible to everyone that shouldn't be only accessible to people who have money. Uh, I've worked a lot on food, and that's really important to me, that food, healthy food, be accessible to everyone not just to people who have money. Um, to me, that's a, um, a really gross violation of people's rights to say, well, you can only access this food if you have money or if you are willing to go through the various hoops 
that we set up in order to participate in a charitable program. And charitable programs are not a great alternative to commodification and um, having food only available for money. The other thing about commodification is that it it uh, standardizes things and says that these things can be exchanged, that they're fungible, that one tract of land or one uh, shipment of wheat or whatever can be exchanged for another with money being the common element. That's the way that we we say that these different things can be commodified. We set a price on them. And then you can pay a certain price for a tract of land, pay, pay another price to buy another tract of land. But in fact, each tract of land is unique. It has its own history, its own um, human use associated with it. It may have people associated with it who care very much about it and who have been trying to steward it for sometimes a millennia, not, not just generations going back, but in the case of indig- indigenous people for millennia. Mm-hmm. So you write about sort of this alternative to a commodity-based food system as a commons-based food system. Can you share a little bit about that and how this commons-based food system is a more equitable system for communities? Well, a common-based system says that any goods that are necessary to fulfill human rights whether that's food, water, or the resources that we need to produce food, the the ocean, um, land, seeds, that those are in the public domain, that they should properly be in the public domain, and they should be accessible to all, Um, not saying that anybody can abuse them or exploit them, but that anyone who needs them to fulfill their rights should be able to access them. And and I think that's the most just way, the most equitable way to ensure that everyone's rights are met. about how you know there are there's so much interconnectedness in the food system and that all of these different parts have to be decommodified you know again from labor to seeds to land and you know is there anything else that you can share about about that and how and that interconnectedness and how you know the whole system has to be turned over not just one component part Well, that's what we think of when we say that the food system needs to be transformed. It needs a really deep structural change. You can't just tweak it around the edges and say, okay, we're going to uh, increase the amount of food that people can buy with the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or we're going to give some more money to food banks so that they can make 
more food accessible to people. The transformation of the system means really rethinking who has power in that system, who owns and makes decisions about everything that goes into that system, everything that makes it work. And it's one reason that food system transformation is so difficult because food is connected with all of these other systems that are out there. Some of those connections are really obvious, like the immigration system, that because our immigration system is broken, there's not labor available to work on many farms, even though there are people who would love to have those jobs and farmers in the United States would really love to have that labor, but they can't legally get into the United States to get those jobs. People in the United States don't want to work on farms generally. Uh, it's really hard work. It doesn't pay very well. So if the immigration system could be fixed, could be transformed, then it would make a really big difference to the food system. But it's not just the immigration system. It's our transportation system. It's our financial system. And the financial system, that's something that I'm just slowly starting to understand a little bit better, that banks and investors have a really deep stake in the food system. And especially since commodities were deregulated in uh, 2000 with the Commodities Futures Act, uh, it became possible for interests that don't have a direct say in or direct stake in food to start investing in food. So that meant that things like TIAA-CREF uh, were suddenly investing in land in Brazil, in Latin America, land grabbing. Uh, land is a great investment because they aren't making more of it, as I think Mark Twain was the one who said. Um, so food and land are things that people will always need and investors are very interested in these. It's one reason that Bill Gates is the one of the biggest landowners in the United States. He's invested in land. He's bought up all this land, not because he wants to grow food or to be a good citizen and to turn it over to indigenous tribes from whom it was stolen in the first place. That's not what he has in mind at all. He's buying it as an investment whose value will only increase over time. So all of these systems need to be reformed at the same time in order to have that deep decommodification of our food system that's needed in order to fulfill human rights. It is so complex. It really is. And, and as I said, I don't consider myself an expert in uh, the commodity system or the financial system at all. I turn to other people for good advice on that. There's a recent book that just came out by Rupert uh, Russell called Price Wars that I'm working through. It's quite interesting. He says that the commodities and the commodification of so many things is what's creating chaos in our world right now. Chaos in food markets, chaos in in uh, financial markets, uh, wars, climate change, it's all interconnected with commodification.
it's a fascinating book. And, and I know it's gotten some mixed reviews, but uh, I, I'm enjoying it. I feel like I'm learning a lot from it. And another person who's done a lot of work on the financialization of the food system, whom I respect greatly, is Jennifer Clapp at the University of Waterloo. She's written quite a bit about it. Great. Thank you for sharing that. I think what's frustrating to me is that this dominant narrative says that industrial agriculture is necessary to feed our rapidly growing population. But it feels very much like that's just a story that is being told. And I'm wondering what is needed to overcome this paradigm or this story or change the narrative. That's a great question, Natalie. And I think many people are realizing that the narrative needs to change in order for the politics to change and the power to change, that um, we, we must feed the world, we being the United States, must feed the world is a totally false narrative. We have never fed the world. There are 828 million hungry people now. And by hungry, I mean on the verge of starvation, uh, chronically food insecure. That number went up considerably with COVID. It's been going up with climate crisis, which has cut into productivity. So COVID and then the more recent uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine have both contributed to rising food prices and rising food insecurity. Um, it's a false narrative that serves the interest of agribusiness. It's called the productivist narrative that we need to produce more and more food and farmers get sucked into it because uh, they're being told, well, we feed the world, but it's not true. Only a small percentage of the, the grains that are being produced, grains and seeds that are being produced in the United States are actually feeding people. Most of it goes into animal feed or industrial uses like biofuel. Um, but 70%, some people say 80% of the actual food that's being consumed in the world is grown by small scale producers. And most of that never enters these international trading systems at all that U.S. farmers are selling their grain into. Uh, the big agribusiness traders, the ABCD companies, Archer Daniels, Midland, uh, Bungie, Cargill, and Dreyfus, um, those are the big grain traders, but they're moving product around the world, but not feeding the world by any means. That's not what people are eating. Yeah, so can you tell us about the alternate narrative that is regenerative in nature? Mm -hmm. The alternate narrative is that it's small-scale producers who are serving either subsistence needs or territorial markets who are actually feeding the world. And they are using, more and more, they are using agroecological practices which protect their livelihoods provide better dietary diversity, and protect the environment, uh, which industrialized agriculture does not do. Industrialized agriculture uses up at least 70% of the 
the resources that are available for food production, but only provide at best 30% of the, the grains that are being traded internationally. While uh, peasant agriculture is, they're using less than 30% of the land, but uh, actually feeding 70 to 80% of the world's population. So that's the narrative that needs to be in place, that it's not U.S. farmers that feed the world, quote unquote. There's no way that we could feed the world. People want to feed themselves. They don't want to be buying grain from these international traders that are jacking up the prices and profiteering from things like the Ukraine uh, war they want to be raising their own food for their own purposes and frequently raising traditional foods, things like millets and pulses, not eating more and more wheat and maize and rice, the, the things that have taken over this international trading system. And, and they're not even foods that are the most nutritious. Uh, millet and some of these traditional pulses that India is famous for, for instance, are far more nutritious than the foods that are being traded internationally. And then as diets change with international uh, trade, um, people's preferences change. So now in China, it's considered a little bit um, low class, uh, déclassé to be eating brown rice. They want to be eating white rice, even though brown rice is far, far more nutritious. And the same in India. That is so interesting. So, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about sort of the, the way that we use the word commons and, and just, you know, the importance of language. And I'm wondering, you know, whenever we're talking about these methods that the people that are actually feeding the world um, are using, they might be sustainable or regenerative or climate smart by nature. Uh, but there's a lot of debate over definitions and practices that should be included. Can you, um, well, you talk about the importance of shifting the focus and the attention onto the outcomes rather than the practices. And I'm wondering how does this shift in framing lead to you know a more productive conversation? Well, well, let me go back just a little bit, Natalie, because you're using a few terms that I would never use. For instance, climate smart agriculture, I don't talk about that. It's something that the U.S. government promotes. But I talk a lot about agroecology, which not only is a regenerative practice, uh, but it's also a social movement. It's something that peasant farmers are using and promoting around the world. Um, and the advantage of agroecology over some of these other terms like climate smart agriculture, regenerative agriculture, which is more and more popular in the United States, nature-based solutions or nature-positive agriculture, you'll run into that sometimes in international forums like the Convention on Biological Diversity or this 2021 UN Food System Summit, there was a lot of talk about nature-based solutions. But the advantage of agroecology over those other terms is that agroecology is multifunctional. 
Agroecology is a system that is providing better livelihoods for farmers because they don't have to buy uh, inputs from agribusinesses. They're making their own inputs from biological ingredients. It's environmentally um, sustainable because they aren't poisoning the soil and waters with uh, synthetic pesticides and synthetic fertilizers. It provides much better diets for people because it's based on diversifying crops uh, so that people are getting a much better diversity of foods. And most people know that for a good diet, you need to be eating a, a real diversity of foods. If your whole diet consists of pizza, you're not going to be well fed, uh, even though pizza actually has I, I know Reagan argued that ketchup should be a vegetable uh, long ago, but no, no, it, it really shouldn't. And tomato sauce is not adequate as a, a vegetable. But agroecology is serving all of these purposes of protecting biodiversity, uh, protecting people's diets, protecting farmers' livelihoods. Um, it's doing all of those things at the same time. And those other systems that you mentioned, like climate smart agriculture, which the U.S. government loves to talk about, they are only uh, environmentally positive. They do sequester a little more carbon in the soil, which is good, but so is agroecology. Agroecology is doing that, but also providing all these other benefits. Okay, so, you know, kind of back to we talked about that interrelatedness, it, it feels like those other sort of trending words are missing the mark in terms of depth. And that's kind of what you're saying, I feel like. They really are. They really are. And they're being used partly because they serve the purposes of agribusiness. The United States government is heavily influenced by agribusiness lobbyists. And you can just look at a website like OpenSecrets.org and you can see how much money the agricultural uh, corporations are dumping into trying to elect politicians that are favorable to their interests and trying to sway legislation in various ways. They have all kinds of tactics for doing that. They um, get scientists to publish things that agribusiness has written but it, it provides this veil of legitimacy if it comes out in a scientific journal and a scientific a, a scientist's name is under it. There's a, a person, Marion Nestle, um, Nestle, excuse me, absolutely not Nestle. Uh, Marion Nestle has done a lot of work on industry funding of research and how duplicitous that is. And every... Every day she has a new blog post of a new study that's been funded by industry that says, for instance, peanuts are fine to eat. You can still lose weight even if you're eating peanuts. Or prunes have all these nutritional benefits. Uh, and, and she always says, you know, these things are funded by industry. And of course they're going to say that eating peanuts is a good thing or eating prunes is a good thing. This is the prune um, lobbyists who are funding this, or I guess they like to call themselves the Dried Plum Association since prunes have a somewhat negative connotation. 
Right. And it's really hard as a, you know, as a consumer to navigate the this language that does get co-opted and used against you as a consumer, you know, to make you believe that you're you're being environmentally conscious, but absolutely. Absolutely. You you have to be knowledgeable and you also have to be unrelentingly skeptical. Was this shift in framing? Um, I can't remember which article it was, but you talked about changing, you know, whenever we're talking about types of agricultural practices, you know, just that importance of not being caught up on the, the definitions and the practices so much as the outcomes. And I'm wondering if you have anything, you know, to share about that in terms of, of why that is, is a more, I don't know, healthy, useful way of, of moving towards a more sustainable food system. Well, honestly, Natalie, I should reread that article because I'm, I'm trying to remember why I would have made that argument. But, but I think that um, the, the focus on outcomes, if you're looking at the ultimate, ultimate outcomes, things like uh, are people actually getting more food, then that makes a lot of sense. Or if you're looking at is biodiversity actually being preserved, that makes a lot of sense. So frankly, I think it's all to the good to allow farmers a lot of leeway in how they're going to meet their goals, but just say, this is our, this is what the public wants. We want you to be preserving biodiversity. In effect, what that means is that they shouldn't be using synthetic pesticides and they probably should not be using synthetic fertilizers or not to the extent that they are now because those kill the microorganisms in the soil. But um, farmers are very resourceful and they might come up with a much better way of doing something than a non-farmer would be devising. So I, I think it's better to say, here's what the public needs and wants from you. We want you to be producing diverse amounts of healthy food. We want you to be preserving the environment. We want for you, it would be possible to say, we want for you to be allowing the public to walk across your land and to have trails across your land. That's something that in the United Kingdom is taken for granted that uh, private land generally can be accessed by the public or by ramblers, as they like to call them, uh, people who are out for a walk. They don't have to stop and talk to the farmer. Of course, they're supposed to shut gates behind them and, and not leave trash behind and not um, terrorize the livestock. But they have access to that land. And that goes back to this deep tradition of commoning in the United Kingdom that's far deep, deeper than our tradition in this country. Yeah, so I'm wondering, you know, in this moment that we're in right now, you know, you're talking about farmers and we know that land access is, you know, one of the, the biggest challenges to to for beginning farmers, young farmers. 
why in this moment right now are people looking to the commons model and other creative, you know, land access options, um, you know, more than in the past? I mean, I guess it's to address that, that inability to access land. I, I think there's several reasons, Natalie. It's a really good question. Why now? Um, I think one reason is that COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic, really exposed how broken the industrialized food system is and how many people could not access healthy food and how the, the industrialized food system supermarkets were afflicted with supply chain problems, how they simply could not meet the challenge of COVID. They couldn't meet a shock. They were not sufficiently resilient. So people are definitely looking at alternatives that will provide better access for especially poor people, um, people of color who were, were hit worst by COVID. But I think also the rapid financialization of land and resources has made a big difference that that has pushed up the price of land. And COVID contributed to that too, with a lot of people realizing, hey, I don't have to go into my Wall Street office. I can buy land in a, a beautiful spot like Vermont, and I can work from home as long as I have internet access. So affordable housing has become really hard for people to get. And land uh, has also become more and more uh, difficult to access. So young people who are just trying to get started can't break into that market, and the commons allows them better access. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and all of the agrarian trust, agrarian commons, you know, different commons around the country definitely all have a, a land justice or a social justice component to them and mm -hmm. so that feels somewhat like a very much a part of this commons model and not just the agrarian commons model but um, other models as well and that's one reason it's so attractive to me because there are so many instances of deep injustice in our food system and this is one solution that people are working on that people are enthusiastic about so i think it has a lot of promise Mm hmm. So if if people are interested in this commons model, you know, Agrarian Trust on, on our website, we do have everything is on there free and available to look at in terms of legal, a legal guide for outlining bylaws, land stewardship standards, equitable lease building, and a lot more. And I'm wondering if there are any resources that, that you know of that, you know, outside of Agrarian agrarian trust resources um, that, that you want to share for anyone that's interested in this commoning process? Well, there's a commons journal. Um, there's also um, a blog post and, and oh heavens, I'm, I'm going to have to send you the link, Natalie, because I can't remember the name of it now, but it's about uh, solidarity economies and how they are advancing around the world, which is always interesting to me. You, you'll find things from Romania or India or countries that, that we don't hear a lot about in this country. 
So there are a lot of other resources. As far as legal resources go, Vermont Law School has done a really nice job of creating resources that help people get access to land and help them get past some of the barriers. But they're not so much into the commons model. They are more looking at um, how a person who's interested in private ownership would get access to land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's apparent that there are there are solutions out there. There are models out there, and um, you know, I thank you for sharing for sharing that one. Is there any any other examples that that come to mind of creative land access that that aren't commons necessarily, but just creative? land access solutions? Sure. Eco-villages, which you you might say, well, that's a commons model. And in many ways it is, but sometimes eco-villages are set up so that each person has a private home, but there's some land that's shared. So it's a kind of hybrid. It's a mixture of private ownership and public ownership. And there's some great examples around the country. A friend lives in an eco-village in Davis, California, that's just beautiful. Uh, each person has their own home, but there's a, a school and a, a whole park in the middle, and then um, a farm. Community gardens are other examples of shared ownership uh, that come to mind. Community kitchens another example. So I think people are exploring lots of ways that they can be sharing. You can even think of something like zip cars, uh, where every person doesn't need to have their own private vehicle. They can buy into the service of being able to use a car, because that's what we need. We don't have to have this hunk of metal sitting in our driveway unless it's a status symbol and we really want our neighbors to see what a, an amazing car we've been able to afford. We want the service of being able to get from here to there when we need it. And if another service can provide that, great. Ray Anderson started a company, a carpet company, uh, a long time ago where he was selling carpeting as a service. And it was a really interesting model. He would not sell carpet. He would go to businesses and sell Um, the service of having your building carpeted or your office carpeted. So people would come in and put down these squares of carpet that would align with each other seamlessly. And then when squares needed to be replaced or when there was a coffee stain on a square or something worse, then uh, Ray Anderson's company would come in and just replace that square. And it it works beautifully. You don't need to buy a whole new carpet. You basically just want the service of having a soft surface underfoot that absorbs some of the sound. Wow. I really need that because I have a one-year-old and my carpet is destroyed. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, I feel so inspired from for talking to you. And I so appreciate your time and sharing these inspiring you know, other ways of thinking about food and land and commoning and more. And uh, I feel like, you know, this really, what's really stuck with me too, is this idea of the narrative that we're, that we're telling ourselves and that we're sharing within our communities. So Mm -hmm. that is definitely what I'm, I'm going to carry with me. Great. 
Well, thanks so much for interviewing me. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. Hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Calliopeia Foundation, supporting organizations and initiatives that reconnect ecology, culture, and spirituality. Learn more about our work at agrariantrust.org. Mm-hmm.